Well, our daughter Katie's, her, her high school this week uh, put on the musical production uh, Cinderella uh, this past weekend, and some of you I know we saw there and, and saw it, and it was really well done. Uh, I actually ended up watching it three times, so I, I enjoyed it, I guess, enough to do that. Um, one of the things that always impresses me, and I was actually just talking with JK about this right before the service, is 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 um, how the students have been taught to respond when things don't go as planned. And so there's inevitably, you know, costumes will they'll have issues with them or some prop that's supposed to be right here and it doesn't get put there. And so they, they improvise or, or somebody misses their line. And so they, they just kind of have to roll with it. I, I, it's inevitable those kinds of things ha- will happen in a production like that with all of the details that have to be worked out. And it's, again, it's neat to see how those student actors deal with that in, in really amazing ways. In the first production, uh, first night, that uh, opening night, uh, I didn't even realize it was a mistake, but this stepsister, you know, falls out of the chair on the floor. And I thought, that's hilarious. And it wasn't, part, it wasn't supposed to happen, but they just went with it. And, and, uh, and I just think that's great. And, and um, um, so, so we see that, and that's, that's really impressive. True improv uh, acting has always astounded me, and partly because whatever it is that makes you able to do that, I do not have that at all. Uh, I very much rely upon a script and want and my notes. I don't have what it takes to think on my feet, to speak on my feet. Certainly, uh, that's certainly true in preaching. Uh, I, I use a very full manuscript. This is why the iPad is a wonderful gift to me. So I don't have to have a stack of papers on this podium, uh, and so I've I know I've shared this with some of you because people will think like because you're a preacher you must you know have be not no fear of public speaking or anything like that as I stumble around trying to say those words. Uh, that's definitely not the case for me. Uh, I I while I, I don't have um, fear of standing and preaching anymore. If you really want to scare me, just like stick a microphone in my hand and say, you know, stall for five minutes or something like that. And I will panic because that's the kind of stuff that just keeps me up at night. Um, because my my default is to stick to my notes, it's to stick to the script. And and that's what I truly try to do. Uh, I know there are others who are more extemporaneous. Eric and Thomas probably would fall in that category of preachers that you get to hear and I've, I've, I'm always thankful for that and always thought, man, I'd like to be able to do that. And then I try it and I think, no, I don't think I'll even want to learn to do that. Um, and so I'll trust that the Spirit guides me in my preparation of what I want to say. And, and I do. I mean, I pray for the Spirit to work. And, and there are those moments, moments when, you know, you go off script, but those are more rare for me than they are for others. Well, all that to say, uh, I, I, I think about these things. And I, I think I joke with my kids sometimes uh, usually after I've done something that makes them question my intelligence or my general mental health, uh, you know, it's like I'm leaving to go somewhere and after the fourth time I've come back into the house to get something that I've forgotten and I haven't even left the driveway yet, they're, they, I, they'll joke about it or something like that and how forgetful I am. And I say, no, 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 everything your dad does is well planned. It's all, it's all well planned and I'm not sure if they buy it or not. But I like to think so. I, I said something like that Virginia this, to Virginia this week. I, Tuesday, I was up here, and I forgot my keys. This is a theme, apparently. Uh, I forgot my church keys, and so I ring the doorbell, 
And she has to stop what she's doing, get up from her desk, walk down the hall, let me in my door, let me into my office, and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, she, of course, she's very accommodating. She threw things at me. But other than that, she was very nice about it. And then I went home for lunch, and I'll get my keys when I come back for lunch. Well, I forgot them again, of course. So I'm ringing the doorbell. She gets up, stops what she's doing, walks down the hall, lets me in. And she's very nice about it and says something like, you know, I sit most of the day, so it's actually nice to get up. Thanks for trying to make me feel better. Um, and I said something like, I think, I, you know, everything I do is well-planned or something like that. I want to, I'm thinking of you, Virginia. Um, but that's obviously baloney, and I know she didn't buy that. Uh, listen, as we see these events uh, unfold in Acts, this is the connection, uh, it, might, it might have seemed to those that were kind of watching these seemingly chaotic uh, events and happenings that, that seemed like they were somewhat haphazard and random and, again, kind of chaotic, uh, from ground level, it, it probably looked one way. You think of Christ's ministry, His life and ministry, and in, in, in His incarnation, much of His ministry probably looked this way. I mean, He's... Oh, he's traveling around in these different places and he encounters opposition and he has these seemingly, you know, chance encounters with people and there's these disruptions to things that they were going to do and that gets thrown, pushed aside and now they're doing this. There are all these chaotic crowds and then there's these periods of isolation where nobody's around. Uh, there are these interruptions. There are all kinds of changes to the itinerary, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, these appearances between his resurrection and his ascension, I mean, from ground level, it would look just like chaos. And we, and we, it was, we get into Acts chapter 2, and as we're going to see throughout Acts, but particularly right here, we see that it, with the Spirit's coming, there are these sights and sounds and the tongues and the crowds and the timing of these things and, and these disturbances and these taunting and the mocking of the people. It probably seemed pretty chaotic. It probably did. That's from ground level. But from God's level, the, the, all was perfectly ordered. All was, nothing was chaotic about it at all. Everything was happening truly uh, in, in a way that was well planned. Um, it, God isn't an improv actor. He's not simply reacting to circumstances that are just kind of happening, that are out of His control. That's not it at all. What's unfolding is according to plan. It's according to script. Or as we're going to see, it's according to Scripture. This is, this is what we see. And so there's one consistent story that God, the master story writer, is, has written. And He's written that before the foundation of the world. And, and we're part of that, brothers and sisters. We're not just outside looking in. He, he sees the end from the beginnings. There's this one consistent plot that's unfolding. And so from ground level, from our ground level, and we think of our lives, and we look at the world around us, and we see the chaos that's, that's unfolding in the world right now, it may seem chaotic, it may seem random, but it is not. It's not. And so this morning we see this truth, and we don't see it in some you know, little dense doctrinal letter or anything like that. We see, we see it not as a theological lecture, but we see it in an in, in, in an evangelistic appeal. And that's what we find. The, the ESV heading again, if that's what you're looking at, is Peter's Sermon at Pentecost. Now, you may hear, you may see that, and you may picture rows of chairs and people sitting in a building and listening to Peter standing behind a podium with an open Bible, and that's what you're thinking of Peter's Sermon at Pentecost. That's not it at all. This is impromptu street preaching, if anything. 
and so it starts with Peter responding to this accusation that he and the other disciples are publicly intoxicated at nine in the morning. And so, so, but Peter, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands and he courageously proclaims that Jesus is Messiah in the same crowded city where Jesus was just murdered a few weeks ago. And, and, and within just a few minutes, as we just read, some 3,000 plus souls trust in Christ for salvation and the church just begins with a bang. And, and, and it, and it had looked, it had looked like Jesus would, was doomed. It, it looked like death had won. It looked like the little Jesus movement that was, was exploding. It just kind of fizzled out and it was finished. But all was going according to plan. All was going according to plan. Everything was happening so that these people might, verse 36, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Everything was, was setting up to, to, to make that crystal clear. And so we're, we, we aren't just casually observing this play on stage this morning as we see these things. I want you to understand we are caught up in this drama of redemption. So we need to see that. So three statements that just kind of communicate this, that these things that are happening, and this is, as Peter, you know, preaches to these crowds, this is the, 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 the sharp edge of his message. It's everything that's happening is according to plan. It's according to script. It's according to scripture. You, first thing that we'll see is you have the, you and I, we have the same spirit who was poured out according to scripture. The same spirit. And so last time, remember on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are gathered together in that upper room of a house and the spirit comes just as Jesus promised and there was there was the audible evidence the sound of the rushing wind the visible evidence these flames of uh, tongues like flames of fire resting on people there was the oral evidence as these people began speaking in languages they've never spoken before and so this drew the attention of all of those crowds of pilgrims that were there for Pentecost in Jerusalem and so all these residents and all of these pilgrims moving toward the house where the disciples gathered with those strange sounds and Sites, and then you have the disciples then on the flip side filing out of that house and into the streets. And so they're kind of meeting there in the streets and people from all over the world, uh, the known world at that time, they're hearing these, their languages, their hard languages spoken by these kind of backwoods Galileans. It's like, I don't, this is an old reference now, but Phil Robertson or something from Duck Dynasty, if you remember that. It's like him speaking like perfect. Uh, French or Mandarin or something like that. And I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just mind blowing. And so the response is what? It, we saw this last week. It's perplexity. They're, they're confused. They're curious. And it's also mockery. So verse 12, look, chapter two, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What's the significance of this? This isn't just like some novelty, like they're watching a fire, but there's, there's meaning here. This is signaling something uh, just in, incredible that's happening. Some kind of transition moment for us. What does this mean? But others, verse 13 said, they are filled with new wine. Then verse 14, but Peter, he's the unofficial spokesperson of the apostles here. He's standing with the eleven. He lifted up his voice and he addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, first, let's 
Is this the same Peter? Is this the same guy who, who's just cowering before these, many of these very same people just days, few weeks before? And he stands up with this, speaks boldly, and, and he says in verse 15, For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Their hours start at 6 a.m., so it's like 9 a.m. It's only 9 a.m., and you think we're all plastered? Peter says these, these incredible happenings, they can't be explained by you know, breakfast wine. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This isn't, this isn't evidence of alcoholic inebriation. This is evidence of prophetic fulfillment. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on to quote with a, just a few minor variations. Joel 2.28-32, what Patrick read at the beginning of the service. And later, he's going to recite Psalms 16 and Psalm 110 that we read also together. Now, he didn't have a bound Bible with in front of him as he's reading these things. Books weren't even invented yet. He didn't have a scroll that was you know tucked under his, his robe or something like that that he pulled out. These, this, these, are, these are passages that he's recited from memory. This may have been part of Jesus' instruction to the to him and to the other disciples during those 40 days. But he has he's, his words are, are memorized. And he says in verse 17, and, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. All flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. The big idea that, that he's really driving home here is that the Spirit was poured out on all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Not just seasoned prophets and rabbis and religious leaders. Not just the older men, but the younger men. Not just the wealthy, but even the slaves will know the fullness of the Spirit. Not just men, but also women that will have the Spirit. And this outpouring of Spirit on all kinds of people is happening According, according to script. Just as God said it would happen. This is his point. He keeps quoting Joel and he, and he shows that the outpouring of the Spirit is going to be followed by this terrible time of judgment. And so, verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, the vapor and, and, and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, and Peter didn't know when those judgments, exactly when those judgments would take place, but he only he knew that they would be after the Spirit was poured out. That's what he's saying. He's not, he's not saying they'll be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. What he's saying is these things are going to happen after the Spirit is poured out, before the great and magnificent day of the Lord. Now, since, since the prophecy in Joel had begun to be fulfilled, as it was evidenced by the outpouring of the Spirit, what he's, what he's saying is it's reasonable to assume these things are going to come to pass in due time. Be ready. Be ready. Now, they still haven't come to pass, but they will. They will. We, we find in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, John writes about these same signs that the, as the Lamb breaks that sixth seal during the Great Tribulation. So, so there's a complete fulfillment of these promises of judgment that are coming upon the world. These things will happen when, when Christ returns and judges the world. But Peter's point is saying this, 
the outpouring of the Spirit was predicted by the that, that was predicted by the prophet Joel. It has happened. It's happened. That's what's that's what this means. That's what all this that you're hearing and seeing. That's what all this means. They're saying, what does this mean? This is what it means. This is what Joel was talking about. And now he's saying, so don't expect God's judgment predicted in the same passage to be far behind. Be prepared. Be prepared. And then Joel and Peter offers some wonderful news. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What, what mercy to those deserving of judgment and wrath, God offers this means of escape. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's going he's gonna to go from there to, to point how that salvation, how that statement is true and what Christ did to accomplish, what He accomplished so that He could say those words and that could stand. But let me just say, even before we get there, that offer of mercy still stands today, brothers and sisters. The threat of judgment still looms, but the author of mercy still stands. Who, who, will, you, will you call upon the Lord's name? Will you escape from God's wrath that is coming? We aren't... We aren't we are just as deserving of wrath and therefore we are just as in need of mercy. And, and this opportunity is just as real for us to respond today. We can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We'll come back to that in a moment. So we who are in Christ, we have the same Spirit who was poured out according to Script. Secondly, you, we, we have life in the same Son who suffered, died, and rose again according to Scripture. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So, just pause. Jesus' powerful miracles and really His merciful miracles. That's what's evidenced in those healings and those those signs and wonders that Jesus did was His powerful mercy. But those, those were in part God's way of verifying Jesus' identity and His claims of Himself. And so most people like Nicodemus acknowledge this. And, and like Nicodemus said in John 3, verse 2, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So they, they spoke, they gave verification to Christ and who He is. And so he goes on, verse 23, Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up, listen, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now Peter begins to step on some toes here, or stomp on some toes with the heel of his boot here. I don't know, but I, I, this, isn't, this isn't, you know, fiery, angry Peter. I don't think that. This is compassionate, apostolic finger-pointing, though. You, you crucified and killed your Messiah. This is what he's saying. You, the Jews, represented by the Jewish leaders in particular, and, and lawless men, I think, are, are the Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles are implicated, implicated in Christ's death. But even so, their deeds were all under the umbrella of God's sovereign and eternal decree. That's what he's saying. The crucifixion, listen, the crucifixion of Jesus was not just some unfortunate accident 
like this tragic miscarriage of justice. It wasn't an, an unfortunate ending to an otherwise, you know, really nice and pleasant and wonderful life. No. It was God's definite plan. It was His set purpose. It was, it was scripted. It wasn't improv. Jesus was not simply the, the passive victim of His enemies. He, he laid down His life willingly and was crucified and died by divine necessity. And so Isaiah 53.10, you know, this Old Testament passage that's looking forward to the suffering servant who would come. And, and there we read, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And this is attested to Old and New Testaments. But God, listen, it was, he wasn't only involved in Jesus' death. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was also according to script. And so Luke spends one verse on Jesus' life. He spends, on the miracles, he spends one verse on Jesus' death. Uh, and, and then he spends, nine, I'm saying Luke, yeah, Luke and the writer of Acts, but Peter as he's preaching this. And, and we have nine verses, though, on his resurrection. Nine verses. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was the core of the apostolic message. And let me just say, it should be the core of our message too. We are people of the resurrection church. We, we revel in this reality of the empty tomb. And, 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 and so, verse 23, he goes on, You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, but God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was what? Not possible for Him to be held by it. It wasn't possible. The resurrection of Jesus, listen, it changed everything. And, and it wasn't just some freak, Natural phenomenon. No, no, this was God's doing. It was all according to plan. It was according to script. It was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave. That's what he says. Impossible. Because of God's power over sin and death. Because of God's promise to raise Christ from the dead. Because of God's eternal purpose, uh, purpose for Jesus to be killed and to live again so that His people can live with Him for eternity. It was impossible that he remain in the grave. And Peter cites Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, to show that this has been God's plan for Messiah from of old. So read in verse 25. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, you, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. As he's quoting David there. And, he, and Psalm 16. Now, was David talking about himself? Maybe in part. But, but the 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 glove of this passage of what David's saying here, the glove of David's words, it doesn't fit his hand. It doesn't. And so Peter, Peter's saying, no. No, this is not what he's talking about. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. So, so saying, no, David's not the fulfillment of this. Peter he could have said, you know what, let's go on a little field trip and let's walk, let's walk to David's tomb. And listen, we, we all agree, David's bones are buried in that tomb. I mean, they could have gone there in his day and, and said, hey, this is where David's buried. 
In other words, David's body did die and it did see corruption. He's dead, like really dead. And so verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So in this prophetic role, David was speaking about this promised descendant who would come. He was looking ahead. We're not sure to what extent David even realized it as he spoke, but he was looking ahead and speaking about the resurrection of Christ. And then Peter says confidently, verse 32, this Jesus, this Jesus, God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. I picture the 11 standing sort of behind him saying, yes, amen. Witnesses. And there were many witnesses, hundreds of witnesses. And so Jesus lived. He died. He rose again according to script. But that's not all. He, he ascended according to plan. And he goes on, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All this, this tongue speaking and all this these signs that are before you and all this wind and all this stuff that you're seeing today, this is, this is for you. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1 that we read a moment ago. David's not seated at God's right hand. His bones are buried in the tomb. So this must not refer to David. This must refer to the Messiah. And Peter brings the punchline of verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one the Scriptures have been pointing us to, that we've been hoping in, and that we've been teaching our children to look for, to wait for. This is the one. This Jesus is the Messiah. But not only that, He's Lord. He is Yahweh. He's our covenant-keeping Lord. There couldn't be a stronger affirmation of Christ's deity that, that Peter could make here. Now take, listen, Brothers and sisters, just quickly, and then we're going to move ahead. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Listen, our hope, what we trust in, where our confidence lies, it's not, it's not in some man-made religion. It, it's not that these religious gurus a couple thousand years ago kind of were cleverly you know, scripted some ideas and some system of morality that we're kind of keeping with or some key to spirituality or something like that, to a better life. We, we don't trust in a man-made book that's full of inconsistencies and discrepancies and errors. No, we know for certain, for certain that God has made the crucified and risen Jesus who actually walked on this earth who lived among us, who 
demonstrated these miracles. This same Jesus, He made Him both Lord and Christ. It all happened according to God's plan. It happened according to script. Our confidence is well-founded. Our hope is, is secure. The Son that we have life in, He lived, He suffered, He died, He rose, He reigns according to God's plan, according to script. And what was going through Peter's mind as those words rolled off his tongue? I, we don't know for sure. I can, I can imagine though. And what were the other disciples thinking? Maybe they're Peter's like, we didn't know you were going to go there, Peter, and they're kind of backing away. Uh, maybe I want to retreat into the shadows here. I mean, he's saying these things. Remember, we know what happens next. We know that we're going to read that there were 3,000 plus souls who believed and were added to the church that day. They didn't know that. For all they knew, they were about to meet the same fate that Jesus met. They were about to be killed by the same people that just killed Jesus a couple weeks earlier, a few weeks earlier. They didn't know that. But what we see, we see the response in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And this brings to the last, last statement. It's this, you and I, we are part of the same church that was born according to script. According to Scripture. So, so they're cut to the heart, these, these hearers. That, that means to strike violently. To stun. So this convicting work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as His Word is proclaimed, it was swift and it was drastic. They're cut to the heart. The Spirit can do that, can't He? I mean, uh, sometimes, I think if we could go around the room sharing our stories, if you're in Christ and how the Spirit worked to convict you of sin and 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 righteousness and judgment. Some it was it was slow, it was gradual, it was over time. And you and that convicting work of the Spirit grew for some of you. It was sudden. And you were cut to the heart. You said, What shall I do? I mean, for it's different for all of us. But the Holy Spirit, He took God's word spoken by Peter and He used it to convict the hearts of the listeners in this moment. I mean the word of God, listen, it's the sword of the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 6. It, it wasn't it wasn't Peter's word to wield that day at Pentecost. And here, let me show you guys. Let me cut you people to pieces here. It didn't just have Peter's powers of persuasion behind it or anything like that. It was the Holy Spirit of God who had the effectual power behind that word. And listen, that's what we need. That's what this preacher and any preacher, any teacher ever needs when they proclaim God's word. That's, that's what we desperately need. As we evangelize, as we share the gospel and proclaim the gospel to the lost, we need the power of the Spirit. And He promises to give it. So the, the, but they ask, so they're cut to the heart by the Spirit. And the question they ask, it has this, this ring of desperation to it. What, what shall we do? What do we do then? What do we do? And He, he drives home the application. Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. 
So in telling them what to do, that's their question, what do we do? And so he does tell them that, but he's also explaining what they need. What do they most need? Well, they most need forgiveness of sins. They need forgiveness. They, they needed this. And, and, and this is what God in His, in His amazing grace was ready to give. Forgiveness. Why did they need it? They, need, they had sinned against God. They had killed God's Messiah. They had ignored God's promises. They had disregarded. They had trampled upon God's law. They had, they had offended the Lord. There was, there was only one hope, and that was that God might forgive their sin. They needed forgiveness. And they needed the gift of the Holy Spirit. They needed God Himself to come into their lives where sin once reigned. They needed a personal relationship with God through His Spirit. That's the only way we can be connected to God is through the Spirit. I just say, those are still the two greatest needs of every person that's ever been born. We need forgiveness. We are born sinners in need of God's Forgiveness. We were born separated from God in need of relationship with Him through the Spirit. Even if you're, this is the great encouragement to us, even if you're a murderer of, of, of God's only Son, and we are, in a sense, even if the blood's on our hands, God stands ready to forgive us. He stands ready to forgive you, brothers and sisters. There's not a wrong you've done. There's no sin you've committed. There's no part of your past that's so wretched, so foul, that God can't in a moment forgive you of your sin. You look to Him. It's grace. It's grace. And there's not a single one of us, no matter how you know, squeaky clean you think your record is, and, and that, that doesn't stand in need of His forgiveness. We're all wretched sinners in God's sight. We need His forgiveness. And He'd not only forgive you, but to give His Spirit to live inside of us. Make His dwelling with us. He, he, he is willing to cancel all of your sin debts and then come and live with you. Dwell in you. Change you. Guide you. Empower you. Fill you. Assure you. Keep you. So how do we get what we desperately need? He says, we need to repent. We need to repent. We, that's not just to regret. That's not just to feel sorry. They had already been cut to the heart. That convicting work was done. Repent means to turn. It's to turn. It's, it's, to, it's to have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of, of direction. Reverse the direction of your mind, of your life. In other words, it, it's, 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 to, it's to change your mind and your heart so that you're no longer against Christ, but you're actually looking to Him to trust in Him. That's what he's saying. And so these Jews who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Lord, he's saying, now you need to do this 180 and you need to embrace Him. You need to trust Him. You need to put your full confidence in Him and Him alone. That's what he's saying here. Repent. And then he says, we need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Are we forgiven and on the basis of baptism? You know, there are strains of church tradition that have taught that. Church of Christ, if you come, if you come from that background, we had a lot of friends and exposure to folks that were in that background growing up in, in Texas. Um, but we're not saved by baptism. That's not what he's saying. The, there, there are so many places in Scripture 
and in the book of Acts, we're going to see that, 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 that this offer of salvation, forgiveness of sins is based on faith alone, but without any reference to baptism. That's not what he's saying. And Peter's going to, again, promise this. Over, look in Acts 5, verse 31, and chapter 10, verse 43, and chapter 13, verse 38, and chapter 26, verse 18, and other places. So what's Peter saying? He's saying being baptized on the basis of, on account of the forgiveness of your sins. I think that's the way this is to be understood. That's how this preposition is often translated in Scripture. Oh, that said, I just want you to, I want to emphasize though the importance of baptism here. The, the baptism, it's not an optional add-on, just kind of an upgrade. It, it, is, it is part of the salvation sequence. Repent. And, and because your sins are forgiven as you trust in Christ, then be baptized. And so I appeal, if you've not, if you've trusted in Christ, you haven't been baptized. If you haven't trusted in Christ, trust in Him today. And then be baptized. Be part, folded in as this profession of faith in Christ. God's, God's seal of testimony upon your, your heart and life through, that, through water baptism. We, we are planning a baptism this spring. And so if some of you have been considering this, talk with one of us. Talk with one of the pastors. We'd love to share more with you about the meaning and what this is. And so, all right, verse 40. We're going to continue. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So what are you saying? We don't have the whole sermon here of, of, of Peter. We don't have his manuscript or his transcript even. This is just an excerpt that, that's given to us by the Spirit. But he exhorted them with many other words, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, could Peter and any of the others possibly have expected that that day? No chance in the world were they anticipating that kind of response. From this group of huddled, frightened, scared-to-death disciples to this bustling church of 3,000-plus people in, what, a matter of minutes, hours maybe. The beginning of the church that day, the existence of the church today, this local congregation, every church and the body of Christ around the world and how, how the gospel is spread and how the church has taken root in all kinds of places around the world, that can only be explained not through sociology, but through soteriology. It's the salvation plan of God that's being accomplished. Everything's happening according to script, according to plan. Churches is born according to God's saving, redemptive plan, not according to man's strategy. That's, our, that's where our confidence has to lie. That's, even as we think about this local church, brothers and sisters, we, we don't pound our chest and think, man, what a great work we've done. What, what great work. And we, we attribute and we put plaques on everything because you know this person did this. Our confidence is that we are part of this stream of the church. Spirit's work and saving sinners through the preaching of the gospel and people coming and being born again and baptized and they have the gift of the Spirit and they have gifts and they're serving and they're utilizing those and local churches, they come and go, but God's church remains. And we're swept up into this, brothers and sisters. The same church that was birthed, according to Scripture here in Acts chapter 2, we're part of it. We're part of it. And that, that again, that's a humbling and yet a, a joy-inducing reality for us. It should be. 
So listen, there are no truly haphazard, random, chaotic scenes or episodes in the story of God's redemption. There are no slipping out of the chair and oops, what do we do now moments in in this story. That's not just true in this part of the story that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2. That is, that is true today. It is. Everything that happens is according to script. Listen, I say that and I want to qualify it, not to mute that point, but to, to qualify that and say it doesn't mean that, that that's in a way that eliminates you know, our wills. Don't, don't overthink this or, or get tied in knots of the, over this. It doesn't, I'm not saying that, that it happens in a way that invalidates choice. And so we just, uh, you know, I just live, let, let go, let God, and just not make any more decisions, and whatever happens, happens. That's not what, that's just, it's not should be our response. It doesn't happen in a way, listen to this, it doesn't, it doesn't mean in any way that that minimizes the reality of evil. And so I want to speak, I know there are some of you who've been, who've been sinned against in grievous ways. And I'm not trying to just paste some band-aid, oh hey, God's sovereign, He's writing the script, everything's according to script, and, and in any way that would minimize the reality of awful, awful evil that you've done or experienced. That's not the point. But what what this should do is it does make a difference in, in the way we think, in the way we live, in our attitudes as we respond to these even difficulties. Let me just give you a, a few and then we'll come to the table and, and worship there. First thing I would say is this, is as we embrace this and we understand that things are happening according to the script, one, our worries do weaken. Our worries diminish. Uh, it doesn't mean we... We pretend that we don't actually have problems or pretend that we don't aren't really experiencing pain, that things aren't really as bad as they seem. That's not what I'm talking about. But it does, it takes some of the teeth out of fear and worry to embrace this. No matter what we're going through or what we're afraid we might have to walk through, we can rest in the fact that God is actually able to work all things for our good. Even when we can't, possibly see how that might happen and the answer is not in being able to understand and say oh yeah this i got to understand exactly what god's doing for me to trust him that's not it we're trusting the lord we're not trusting in in the fact that we can understand what he's doing secondly so our worries weaken secondly our decision making isn't so daunting it's not so daunting when we understand this when we recognize that god is in control we won't be so paralyzed by decisions that we have to make. And we have to make them all the time. I think of young people. We have young adults in our house, and there are, many of them are these kind of crossroads in life and lots of decisions about school and jobs and, 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 and relationships, and this can freeze them. You get so, you get, you get so easy to be paralyzed. I wouldn't want to make the wrong decision. I want these implications and feel this pressure to, to uh, what are other people, people think about this decision, all of those things. Now, again, it doesn't mean that we just let go and let God. We don't think, we don't pray, we don't plan, we don't get counsel from people. That's not what we're saying. It doesn't mean we just kind of sit idly by and let life just go. But if we make the wrong decision, quote, air quote, wrong decision, listen, all is not lost. We haven't, we haven't shipwrecked anything. We can trust in God's faithfulness and His ability to direct our steps. Even if we supposedly make the wrong decision, we can, 
Listen, we can walk bravely into this world, into life, into difficult situations and life that's often very confusing and very, very challenging. We can trust that our loving father and the master story writer, he sees the larger picture that we can't see. And, and he, he's faithfully working everything for his glory. We can trust him. So our decisions aren't so daunting. And third, I would just, this is true for all of us. Our salvation is secure. We get this when we see this. When we understand how powerful God is, how much He loves us, we can know that we are secure in Him. Nothing can shake that or rattle that. We don't need to fear ultimate failure or final destruction. We don't need to live petrified uh, about whether whether we'll make it at the end. We can trust Romans eight one that that nothing nothing can separate us from His love for us in Christ. Let's pray, Lord. I pray that those realities would be driven even deeper in our hearts as we come to the table, that you would minister to us by your Spirit through the elements, Lord, and and speak comfort to our hearts, assurance to our hearts as we come and feast and eat and drink together, remembering Christ together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.